0: going to take a break from fundamentals of the faith. We're going to be devoting this particular week to a productive look at the first Christmas uh, to prepare us for obviously this Advent season and what you will be doing with family, friends, and even our church family this morning. We are going to be in Matthew 2, which is different from our current series of the key doctrines of God's Word, but I want to be very clear. Our objective over this time is still the same. It's still equipped out. And so what this time is intended to do is to equip us to be better worshipers of Christ this Christmas season. We want our focus sharpened, our our affections warmed, we want our awe expanded, and Matthew 2 is going to do that. Last week and this week, our pastor has been in Matthew chapter 1, where we've looked at the gospel account of Christ's birth, not only through uh, stepping into the shoes of Mary, but also... Joseph, the son of David, who was Jesus' earthly legal adopted father. This week in Equip, we figured, you know what, we're in Matthew 1 for a couple weeks, the second hour. What happens after Matthew chapter 1? And so we're gonna rest and spend our time, park the car in Matthew 2, and we're gonna peer into some characters that are often overlooked, and that is King Herod and the Magi of Matthew chapter 2, and more specifically. We're asking the Lord's help. Lord, help us to be keen and aware to receive the instruction that we ought from their responses to the supernatural arrival, okay? So let's read Matthew chapter 2 in its entirety. We will pray, and then we'll begin to unpack this this morning. Matthew 2, verse 1 reads the following. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah, for out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly called the Magi and determined from them the exact time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child, and when you have found him, report to me, so that I too may come and worship him. After hearing the king, they went their way, and the star which they had seen in the east went on before them until it came and stood over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. After coming to the house, they saw the child with Mary and his mother, and they fell to the ground and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, the Magi left for their own country by another way. Now, when they had gone and an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, so these are now two dreams that have displayed in this chapter and said, get up, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to destroy him. So Joseph got up and took the child and his mother while it was still night and Left for Egypt. He remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Verse 16. Matthew 2. Then when Herod saw that he had been tricked by the Magi. He became enraged. And sent and slew all the male children who were in Bethlehem. And all its vicinity from two years old and under. According to the time which had been determined from the Magi. What had been spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. A voice was heard in Ramah weeping, great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they were no more. Let's go ahead and pray this morning. Lord, we thank you for this account in your word. We thank you that in all four gospels you have really laid out in front of us the, the magnitude and grandeur Splendor behind the details of your coming, Lord, and we not only see that in the Gospel accounts, but Lord, we have the entirety of the Old Testament starting even back in Genesis 3.15 where you promised someone who would come and deal with this problem known as sin and death. Lord, we thank you for the faithfulness that you have exhibited throughout redemptive history that you are a God who keeps your promises. What you say you will do, you do. And so much in the birth and arrival of Christ, leaving the glories of heaven and coming to this earth and taking on the form of a human body and living a perfect life and being obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Lord, all of this is part of your plan to bring glory to yourself by redeeming, saving, undeserving people such as us. We ask that you would help us now joyfully, and willingly place ourselves under the instruction of Matthew 2. As we note. And peer into some responses that are. It's the best way to put it. A most unholy welcome. That Herod and even the religious leaders in his day. Exhibited to your rival. Would help us to take note of it. And we ask that you would work on our hearts. That we would be in fact better worshippers of you this Christmas season. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now we have to be honest this morning. If you just came, I saw people trickling in. We're Matthew 2 if you're not there. Um, just hearing the name King Herod doesn't really sit well with our seasonal celebration of Christmas. This is the time where we like to think upon pleasantries. We want to dwell on pleasant things that warm our soul and the sentimental details that we enjoy and appreciate the family and friends, and Christmas. And what we find here when we meet King Herod is something very different. This is a character that absolutely will not let us domesticate Christmas. And because this is a man, as we see from the outset, from verse 1 to 18, who raised against this Jesus in the cradle long before the Jewish leaders would nail him to a cross. And so we want to get a sense of the scene and the canvas on which this picture is painted. First of all, a few things about Herod. King Herod is king of Judea, right? It shows up in chapter 2, verse 1. Now, Judea is simply a Greek word for Judah, but at this time, you have to note Judea is significantly bigger, more expansive than the tribe of Judah in the days of the Old Testament, meaning Herod has far more land and even far more authority than even Judah did of old. Secondly, not to be lost, is Herod is an Edomite. You remember Edom, right? The people of Edom. They were descendants of Esau, Esau being the brother of Jacob. And Throughout redemptive history, the Edomites were rivals to God's people from the very outset. And they are to this day, even if you look at our current climate. Histo- Herod, would, it would be recorded, he came to power in the year 40 B.C., and he would do so through a series of incredibly cunning um, and crafty maneuvers with the Romans in his life. And when we say cunning political maneuvers, Herod is a guy who was able to do things and say things that in one instance exhibited extreme sharpness and, and cunning, and at the other times he would turn around and do things That were a bit crazy. And just to be quite honest, wicked. And so he's a a complex individual to say the least. He's this blend of tremendous gifts in one person. But these gifts are strapped to instability and violence. As you noted in Matthew 2 already. We know that he's complex. A few things that history tells us is that Herod is racially Arab. He's religiously Jewish. He's politically Roman and he's culturally Greek. So when Herod woke up in the morning, he wasn't quite sure who he was, okay? He was a political machine. He grabbed hold of the crown and he would not let it go through the rise and fall of various emperors along the way. When you sum, sum, summarize, thank you, Randy, summarize Herod's reign, suffice it to say, he was not good for. The people of God. And we see this in a lot of different ways. For starters, Herod actually burned his people with extremely large taxes. Why was that? It was so that he could build great things that he could be remembered by. That was the reason. Tax these people to death. Build great things so that long after my passing, I will be remembered as great. In fact, one such structure that Herod had rebuilt was the rebuilding of the temple, the Jewish temple for the Jewish people. And history records that he rebuilt the temple to such a state that it was almost more glorious than the original temple of old. So here you have this man, complex, unstable, crafty, who wanted to be remembered for his greatness. We also know that in that arrogance, that Herod was an extremely violent man who was prone to fits of rage. In fact, history records that Herod would kill his favorite wife and his three sons, all in an attempt to protect and shield his throne. This is why Caesar Augustus once wrote that it was better to be Herod's pig than Herod's son. If you were seen as a threat to Herod. That was a very precarious position to be in. In comes the arrival of this newborn baby, who was exactly that in the eyes of Herod. Yet another example of Herod's vitriol towards the Jewish people. You see, Herod was bitter towards the Jewish people because they refused to accept him as being truly Jewish. And so in that bitterness, he would go on to arrange a plan that after his passing, when he would die, he would make sure that a hundred Jewish leaders would be executed. Why would Herod do this? Herod wrote, he simply wanted to know that after his passing, there would be people who would cry. So he arranged the execution of Jewish leaders. This is the visceral, this is the bitterness and violence, the rage of this man. So to say that he was a wicked individual, Northlake, would be a massive understatement. What we're going to see this morning that when you put Herod and you put the Jewish leaders up alongside these Gentile magi and the response here in Matthew chapter two and there's this extreme juxtaposition of responses. You note the following, and this is our main idea or the theme, the takeaway for the morning: Jesus is only welcomed by by needy people who desire God's good and greater King. Let me read that again jesus is only welcomed by needy people who desire god's good and greater king let's notice a few of these responses now having this in mind Herod was as a man and a king first you'll note that the arrival of jesus christ this king jesus first of all troubles the arrogant and the comfortable we see this in verses one through three where we have to ask for Who are these mysterious people that come from the east and show up in Jerusalem and trouble Herod? Well, you're you're aware of the Christmas song, right? We have traditional songs that label them as wise men, or we three kings. These magi are more than likely simply an entourage of people who came from Babylon, or Persia. You look back to the book of Daniel, and he interacts with magi in Babylon. And they would have been the kind of men that the Jews would have looked upon as being ethnically and religiously as far off from God as you possibly be. After all, these were individuals who looked to the stars for clues to historical events. No doubt, obviously here, God's providence, they had obviously received a clear enough sign that the arrival of the king of the Jews had come... That these men are now willing to travel some 1,000 miles from Babylon to Jerusalem. Now, you want to take a moment and just imagine King Herod for a second, okay? You're watching as this large caravan comes strolling into your city, Jerusalem, that you're your ruling from. And this caravan is one big traveling birth announcement party. And you can imagine that from Herod's perspective, this is not a welcome party. This is not a welcome site. Because this party, this baby shower, this entourage of people marked the potential demise of his leadership. And I just noted the, the depths and extent that Herod would take, the steps that he would take to protect zealously that throne. These individuals come and ask, where is the king Of the Jews, and Herod's internal response is arrogance and rage, right? What do you mean, King of the Jews? I'm the King of the Jews. And so, no doubt, this is met with much consternation in Herod's own heart and mind, but he's not the only one nervous. Attached to this, if you just ponder for a moment in that cultural context, you would have had first century Romans around the area who would have been also equally. Nervous by this traveling party. After all, Romans in that time, they were a people who intrinsically trusted cosmic displays as being predicted. In fact, tradition states that they they believed the constellation actually predicted the arrival of another great, a lesser man, far lesser man, and that was Alexander the Great. And so if you're King Herod, and if you are Romans in that time. You take this traveling party seriously. In your cultural context, you would have seen this birth announcement as being legitimate, something to be heeded and paid attention to. And so, of course, arrogant Herod is troubled. He sees the long-awaited king of the Jews as being nothing short of a problem for him and his reign. But he wasn't the only one. Look at verse three again. It ends in an interesting but sad way. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. Not shocked by that. What else does it say in verse 3? And how much of Jerusalem was equally troubled? All Jerusalem with him. Here you have Gentile magi come to worship the arrival of Christ. While the king of the Jews... The priests and the scribes and even the experts in the law, as they were, they're troubled as well. Why? Because they're either arrogant or comfortable. Either way, the arrival of King Jesus troubles the arrogant and the comfortable. They don't want to sign up for the discomforting turmoil that's going to ensue when their unstable king is thrown into a fit of rage by the arrival of this child. Now, it's here that I want to encourage us before we plow through the passage because I'm, it's easy for us to look at Herod and look at the Jewish leaders and go, what were they thinking? What foolishness? I always want to be mindful of, let's not do that. Let's just, Lord, what is it in my own heart? What vestiges of sin and flesh and arrogance and love for the comfortable resides within me? Lord, would you sift that out? And would you reveal it? I think we all have a tendency of just naturally reading Matthew 2 And we want to empathize with what character and individuals in this passage We want to be the Magi I will travel far and wide to render my devotion, my worship, my praise of of this one who came And in many ways we should, that's a great example to emulate And Matthew indeed, being led by God's spirit, that's exactly what God's desire for us to take away, but if we pause for a moment just long enough, I mean, if we were honest with ourselves, I think each of us could notice there's a little bit of Herod inside of every one of us. See, our natural tendency left to ourselves, apart from the grace of God, his miraculous work through his Holy Spirit to enter into us and change our hearts and our desires, this miracle of regeneration we've looked at in the fundamentals of the faith, apart from that, that miracle all of our natural responses to King Jesus would be one of rebellion and consternation it would be unsettling why because in our fallenness who is it that we desire to be king of our own domain in life us it's intrinsic to the fallen broken human nature all of us can have that Instance and moments we begin been question whether or not we desire Christ's reign in our life. Maybe it doesn't show up to the extent of Matthew 2 where we're ready to slaughter everyone to and under, every male child in the city. But there's vestiges of it, no less, of which constantly need to be eradicated and dealt with. I think in part, if you approach this passage in humility, that's part of what we glean. Herod is this individual who's not confused. He understood that, if this man is who he says he was, well, he came with an otherworldly kind of authority that meant his world was essentially over and his throne was in jeopardy. And that was a problem for Herod because Satan had duped him into, into thinking that he was, he was the better and indeed the best of them. At that point, I think if we lean into this passage in, in yes, painful but productive ways, we're benefiting from, from this, right? Because there's moments in our lives where I too think that maybe perhaps I would be a better king. And I would never say that out loud, but don't we exhibit that in practice? We do all the time. We're honest, our hearts can often be paranoid by Christ's reign over our lives in certain areas. We begin to question whether or not him coming in to and ruling and reigning, certain areas we want to guard. We wanna we wanna shield him from. We we don't want him to have full reign, and authority, and sweat, whether it be areas of work, and play, leisure. That is one of the lies that Satan is constantly perpetuating to us in a world that is no doubt broken, yes? You don't endear yourself to a king. The message of the world, the prince of the power of the air, his message is what? Be your own king. You see that arrogance, And his appeal to that arrogance that lies within us. Don't endear yourself to another king. Be your own king. That's what the world is telling us, friends. We, on the flip side, know from both experience and from scripture, is that that's not the way of joyful freedom. You want to talk about a juxtaposition of an unholy welcome versus a holy welcome? Matthew two is it. Magi, religious leaders, herod. The only way you and I experience true joy, true well-being, blessedness, what the Old Testament the Psalms say is Ashray, right? Well-being in every area of your life, is to live our lives under the good and glorious reign of King Jesus. The more submissive we are, the more yielding we are, the more obedient we are, the fuller and freer our life becomes. The well-being that we experience, we observe our fate and our lives as my life is placed under His reign, Lord. This is unto You. This is unto You. I've been harboring this, and no one knows it. This is unto You. I yield it to You. Why do we not do those things? Areas and a love for that which is comfortable. Bottom line. The arrival of King Jesus troubles the arrogant and comfortable. Let's look further at verses 4 through 8. The arrival of King Jesus underwhelms the ignorant and indifferent. Underwhelms the ignorant and indifferent. Underwhelm means to fail to impress or make a positive impact on. Now, not an apt description of what you see in verses 4 through 6. You see, the Jewish leaders, they were indifferent toward King Jesus long before they would go on to to kill him and nail him to a cross. Look at verse 4. Gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. And they said to him, very matter of fact, in Bethlehem of Judea for this is what has been written by the prophet and he quotes Micah chapter 5 and you Bethlehem land of Judah are by no means least among the leaders of Judah for out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel now a few things to note here friends you know it's a problem when the king of the Jews doesn't know where the Christ is to be born that's a problem for a Jew, this would not have been a tricky question. Okay? Jews longed for the Messiah. They anticipated the arrival of this anointed king that would come to, and God would send to save them. They, they were to look upon this with expectation, eagerness. And yet, for Herod here, the king of the Jews, what does Herod have to do? He has to opt out for a lifeline and ask people: where is the Christ? To be born and he assembles chief priests and scribes to ask him this very question and the question that we have to ask of king herod is why does the king of the jews not know where the christ is to be born it was his job to study the law and know the law and rule from the law and yet here in this instance he has no idea what the word of god says and indeed that is problematic and revealed in many many ways Interestingly enough, you have, compared to Herod, you have the Jewish leaders who did know God's word. But notice how they respond to the word in which they know. These leaders are quick to say, hey, Herod, if you want a GPS coordinate as to where the Messiah is to be born, just go to the prophet Micah. He's to be born in the city of Bethlehem. And they turn him to Micah chapter 5, verse 2. We just read it a moment ago. In view, Bethlehem, land of Judah. Too little to be among the clans of Judah from you will go forth for me to be a ruler in Israel. He's going forth from long ago, from the days of eternity. And this is interesting because in Micah 5 2, the prophet says that Bethlehem is too small to be considered among the clans of Judah. But Matthew now picks up on this and says, In light of Christ, in light of this one, God in his providence and wisdom says it be this city that my anointed king would be born. The city of David, Bethlehem, this really means that you are by no means the least. Yes, you are small, but you are not the least. For the greatest king that Israel has ever known and ever will know who will reign from the ends of the earth will come from you. And he will come and he will shepherd you, my people. Now, this would have resonated with those who actually knew God's word, because in their minds they would have been instantly flooded with Matthew. Micah chapter 5, verse 4. He, this one who would come from Bethlehem, he will arise and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they will remain, because at that time he will be what? He will be great. To the ends of the earth. Is this your everyday king, Northlake? Is this your average king? We can unequivocally say, by no means, is this your ordinary average king? Matthew says, Have you ever seen a king who has reigned from the ends of the earth? Not up to this point. But this Christ who comes will come bearing Yahweh's power to the very ends of the earth. Go to Bethlehem, for there he will be born. And then in verses 7-8, Matthew tells us that Herod, he receives the word of God and he hears the prophecy of how great this king would be and where he would be born, the Messiah would be on this earth. He responds by already scheming to bring about this newborn Christ demise this king's demise look at verse 7 that then Herod secretly called the Magi and determined from them the exact time the star appeared and he sent them to Bethlehem and said go and search carefully for the child and when you have found him report to me and then you have these sickening words of deceit right? so that I too we talked about his cunning earlier may come and worship him. I want to join you and report back to you. Now, before we move on, everyone can see Herod's response here, yes? Herod actually has the audacity of trying to outwit the God of heaven and earth. He hears the gospel, he hears this message of a Christ who would come, he would be born in Bethlehem. The Magi are telling him he's here, but this message is not good news that he receives, is it? The gospel, the message, this good news is something he tries to thwart and stop. You pause right there for a moment and just think of the gross audacity that is put on display in Herod's response, as if he could toward the infinite plan and faithfulness of God to care about his purposes. The arrival of King Jesus troubles the arrogant and comfortable. It also underwhelms the ignorant and indifferent, because will traverse further, not only this example from Herod, but also the Jewish leaders. Herod has this arrogance of heart to think that he can avoid God's king, which is a fool's errand, to be sure. But I would also hope that we would notice the, not just Herod's response, and that's gross and obvious, but there's this undercurrent of indifference of the religious leaders to Jesus as well. And you can notice how indifferent they are. As you read along in Matthew 2, you begin to observe that these are individuals who are too troubled by Herod to be troubled with God's grace. And for us, the irony should be sickening, right? Again, you have Gentile magi who are actually willing to travel over a thousand miles to the city of Jerusalem, while the religious leaders of Herod's day don't even bother to take a six-mile job from Bethlehem to Jerusalem. I hope, as you note that contrast, that you're equally as saddened by that indifference design. We're left asking as students of God's Word, why why did the religious leaders refuse to be stirred and moved by the arrival of King Jesus? This was to be someone they had been waiting for. To have an entourage coming and saying, He's come. What What ought to have been the response? The Jew, within the Jewish leaders to this news I drop everything I'm going to Bethlehem I've got to investigate I've got to see this this one who was born and yet that's not conveyed you that they do that at all where is the Christ child to be born they Herod asked them go to Bethlehem and that's it and we're not really told anything else the text doesn't really tell us why they don't Respond as we would imagine they ought. And so we're left thinking with a bit of sanctified imagination what might have been some of the reasons why these individuals did not respond to this in the big way that we would anticipate and expect. Well, there's perhaps a lot of different reasons, right? Again, we're not told. And so we can just perhaps imagine it for a moment, but why are these people not troubled enough by God's grace and good news of the gospel that they drop everything and run to the city of Bethlehem. One perhaps these religious leaders are just too busy with affairs of life. And on a human level, we can understand that. We can empathize by, by that. We too get distracted. We get taken up and consumed with the affairs of life. You yourself have probably ex- even experienced this week and last week. Last week, right? Weeks prior. This is a very busy time and we can... Experience the day to day grind of simply caring for your family, going to work, and paying the bills, just being a faithful Christian. And yet, maybe in all of those things, just like perhaps without these religious leaders, we grow distracted. We don't live with that eager anticipation that Christ is, yes, coming back. He will return for his second coming. Why do we not live with that anticipation? And eagerness were busy. Religious leaders perhaps were themselves, but perhaps even the religious leaders didn't want to upset their otherwise comfortable lives. Some of them would have feared what would have been brought about by two rival kings duking it out, Herod and Christ. Their lives would have been drastically affected. Innocent people would have suffered and died. And so perhaps they just wanted safety. Can I just keep my nice job? Can we just keep the status quo? Let's not rock the boats. Let's just go about our life. Perhaps another reason is that they just run weary and wait, right? And maybe that's you here this morning. Perhaps you're facing all sorts of difficulty in your own life, sickness and and broken family relationships the list goes on and you know that there's this promise that Christ is going to come back even even after his first coming he's scheduled to return and make all things right and yet you're weird in the way these religious leaders, no doubt, grew weary over a number of years. They've waited hundreds of years for the arrival of this promise of a king to come and deliver them. They've been waiting and waiting and waiting, and then this news comes and it just falls on them flat. these individuals are weary. They have watched foreign power after foreign power rise and fall and enter into the land and treat them as strangers in their own home. That was just the status norm for them. That's what they knew. And the saddest thing in all of this is that in this indifference, you have people who are very apathetic to this one who was born and would be set in a cradle a manger. These would be the same people fast forward a number of years who would go on to do what towards this Christ child? From apathy and indifference to hatred and screaming for his crucifixion. Just a generation after These chief priests and scribes treated Jesus with indifference. They would seek to have Jesus murdered in Matthew chapter 26. And I think interwoven here is a lesson and painful, fearful reminder that to all of us is that these Jewish leaders represent a certain group of people. And that is, you can know your Bible and yet not know Jesus, right? But you can't know Jesus without the Bible, right? You can't know Jesus without the Bible, but you sure enough can know the Bible and know theology and know sound things and yet not know Christ. You can still be an enemy of him. And that should show to every one of us this morning. I think in part, this is part of the value of looking at Herod and the Magi and the religious leaders of Matthew chapter 2. The value of looking at their responses is, is, is to compel us to do what? Is to look at the one who is front and center in this gospel account, and that is Christ himself. Whether it be you look at the arrogance of a king and his hatred of this one, his rejection of God's plan and his attempt to arrogantly thwart that plan, and, or maybe just the religious leaders and their indifference to the magi who were compelled to travel far and wide, to render treasure and devotion to him i think the takeaway the value is just coming out of matthew 2 this equip hour let's just be compelled to enthr- be enthralled with christ don't be Herod. <laughs> don't be religious leaders look at the magi's example and say lord may my celebration emulate theirs and not these other parties in matthew chapter 2 be enthralled with Christ. This Christmas. Third. Our third point, the arrival of King Jesus, not only troubles the comfortable and arrogant, it underwhelms the ignorant and indifferent, but it also enrages the hardened and rebellious. Verses 9 through 15: the Magi are tipped off as the Herod's heart through a cheap dream. God would later go on to give Joseph a dream say, Hey, get up, get out of here. Get out of God. He tips off the Magi. He lets them know that Herod's heart, and they don't comply to his command. Instead, they finally crossed God by way of the star, and the text says they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. They worshipped the king at Jesus' feet. They offered their gifts before him, and then they proceeded to go to their own homes after being warned by God and did not return to Herod. Now notice King Herod's furious response in verse sixteen to eighteen. Then when Herod saw that he had been tricked by the Magi, he became very enraged and sent and slew all the male children who were in Bethlehem and all its vicinity from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the Magi. Then what had been spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning. Rachel weeping for her children, and she refused to be comforted because they were no more. So sad part of the passage, no? You don't see a lot of Matthew 2, 16 through 18 on Christmas calls for for a reason. But it is the kind of thing that you'll see from those who rage against God's anointing. It's the kind of thing you'll see from those who are hardened and rebellious and threatened by the messiah's authority this violence arrogance paranoid man that herod was would set out to murder every baby boy within the region that was two years old and under this was the context that christ our king and savior was born the arrival of king jesus enrages the hardened and rebellious of which herod no doubt was a poster child of. Now, we end with verse 18, and you just have to pause for a moment and go, man, that's that's a tough verse to stomach, yes, but also just to end with, I think to run it to its conclusion and to bring the plane to the end of the runway is to simply ask, as believers, North Lake, is that where the Christmas story ends? Herod goes through the city and throughout the entire vicinity, slaughtering every male child to and under, and Rachel is weeping. Thankfully, the answer is no. The founding answer is no. That's not where the Christmas story ends, and we're, we praise God for that. Because this is where the Lord begins to do something very breathtaking for us here in Matthew 2, because he inspires Matthew to take up his pen and being led by the Spirit of God. Matthew, if you pay attention, begins to make all sorts of hope-filled, prophetic connections to a scene that otherwise would have been solely dark and despairing. For instance, just one verse earlier in Matthew 2.15, Matthew quotes Hosea 11, right? Joseph remained in Egypt until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill God's faithfulness. What had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet, and here it is, out of Egypt I call my Son, That's faithfulness on display. But what is also interesting is if you look at Hosea 11 as a chapter, what is it a chapter about? It's a text about God promising to save his people from exile. And in that text, he reminds them of the way that he saved them out of Egypt during the Exodus. And he says, hey, listen, you know that that thing I did for you before? I'm going to do it again. And God quoting this very verse again is now his way of saying, hey, I'm about to deliver my people yet again. This is going to be a greater exodus because I'm going to do this to my son. This would be been all sorts of the imagery that came to the minds of the Jewish people here in Hosea 11. 1. And you find yet another text that's equally wonderful to us, especially, and that is Jeremiah 31. Matthew quotes 31, 15, Jeremiah 31:15. Quoting this Jeremiah here in verse 18 of Matthew 2, God says the horrific tragedy where Rachel weeps over the children of Israel in the days of Jeremiah, God is saying now is doubly fulfilled by what happens in Matthew 2 with King Herod and his efforts to slaughter innocent children. To put this another way, there is this dual fulfillment to Jeremiah thirty-one fifteen, in that the same form of grief that is happening here in the present of Matthew chapter two has also previously taken place in the past. A voice is heard in her mom, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping over her children, and she refused to be comforted because they were no more. To which we ask, why on earth is Rachel weeping? You have to understand that Rachel was sort of an idealized mother of the Jewish people. And the picture in Jeremiah 31, 15, what it paints here is that Rachel is weeping from her grave over what's happening. She's dead, she's buried, but something causes her sorrow. In Jeremiah 31, what causes her great sorrow? Well, if you're familiar with the book of Jeremiah, there's a lot of dark things happening in that day. For one, you have the commander of King Nebuchadnezzar's imperial guard who has gathered the captives at Ramal before taking them into exile at Babylon. Ramah mile in the north of Jerusalem on the way to Bethel, and Rachel's tomb was in Zelzah, which was in that same area. And so in Jeremiah 31, Rachel is actually crying out from her grave as she's watching her children Israel march out of the land and into exile. Her heart is broken over watching her children being taken away into exile. Now Jeremiah 31, that's the context. Rachel Weak. Anyone else think of anything else that is conveyed in Jeremiah chapter 31? Why is it such a significant chapter even for us? Yes, it's part of God's Word, but there's something also bound up in Jeremiah 31. Anyone know? Jeremiah 31. It's actually a very hopeful chapter, right? For us as New Covenant believers, we quote Jeremiah 31 all the time. As followers of Jesus Christ, as believers of the New Covenant, we love Jeremiah 31, right? That's because in Jeremiah 31, context of Rachel weeping, heartbroken over seeing the children of Israel, Israel marched out of the Promised Land and into exile, God responds to Rachel's weeping, actually promising to restore his people. And restore them to the point where they sing with gladness. So God's response to Rachel's weeping in Jeremiah 31, 16 is: Rachel, keep your voice from weeping, and your ears from tears, for there is a reward for your work. Rachel, your suffering, your waiting, your tears are not meaningless. Dry those eyes, I will restore. And that is the promise that overlays Jeremiah 31. God says, I'm going to return them to the land. I'm going to keep my promises. And by the time we reach Jeremiah 31 31, God is hammering the glory of his faithfulness into the hearts of his despairing people. You'll remember there that God promises to make with them a new covenant, saying, I will put my law within them and I will write it upon their hearts and I will be their God and they will be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor. Saying, Know the Lord, for they shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, for I will forgive their iniquity and will remember their sin no more. Rachel, dry your eyes. I will restore them, I will make a new covenant, I will forgive them of their sins, and they will know me directly and intimately. We can see that God's promise there, right? yes? And of that the Christmas story does not end in Matthew chapter 2, verse 18. In the midst of great loss and bloodshed, innocent baby boys being slaughtered at the hands of a violent, unstable, arrogant king, God promises a better day is coming. Where a new covenant relationship will be extended to all of God's people and they will know Him directly. Now, church, this morning, we're going to participate in an ordinance that is a way for us to remember the magnitude and grandeur of this promise. And that we're going to take a cup full of juice and a cup full of bread reminding us of the blood and body of Christ that procured for us our salvation, making and extending this new covenant to us through his blood. For us as new covenant believers, we know this day has come. Christ fast forward from Jeremiah 31 to Matthew chapter 2 and chapter 1. This promise was fulfilled in the arrival of a king and anointed one who would come to do exactly that. He would deliver his people, but it looked significantly different than what many people anticipated in Jesus' day. It wasn't from wrong. It was setting them free from the enemies of sin and death, the greatest. For those of us, we know that that promised day, that new covenant, is here in Christ. And so, Matthew quoting Jeremiah 31 is no accident. He brings all of this to mind this wonderful connection that God wanted us to make that this Christ child who was born in Bethlehem, this child that the angel announced, the the newborn that the Magi honored, and the king that Herod sought to kill, is none other than the Messiah or Savior who brought about this promise of the new covenant and he's offered that salvation through his blood, forgiveness through his own life, death and resurrection. I just want to encourage you this morning as we go to sing, even in the next hour, we're going to lift up our voices in song and I say this each time that we're in a quip. this is instrumental to us being appropriately prepared, hearts and minds, as we enter into the next hour. To belt out from the tops of our lungs these songs rich in truth. To place ourselves under his word and, and ask for the Lord to lead us as we rightfully celebrate this one who came. We see some responses here in Matthew chapter 2 between Herod, Jewish leaders and magi. We want to emulate more the magi. Worship, adoration, willing to travel far and wide to give him what he deserves let's pray this morning father we got me there's a lot else to be said here we just ask that what we were able to cover taking an entire chapter we see a lot of responses many of which are gross and underwhelming just and saddening in and of themselves i pray that you would find us to be humble not to approach this passage with arrogance to think lord that we are above herod the religious leaders but lord we Want to be mindful that we have vestiges of that those those sins and indifference and apathy and coldness and indifference in our own hearts, we ask that you would truly dispel those from within us. That you would help us to now worship you, not only in the next hour, but even as we spend time with families and friends and Lord, a mixture of those who know you as personally as Lord and Savior and those who don't. Lord, help us to be appropriately tempered and directed and compelled to worship you as you deserve. Help us to lead our families well, that we would not be consumed with all of the trappings and all the distractions that come with this Christmas season. But may we be a focused people, a sober people, and a grateful people over this wonderful occasion that we have a Savior who, who was promised long ago. And Lord, he came. And lord that we also even live in these days eager for his coming again help us to be faithful help us to steward our lives and especially even this morning over the next hour help us to steward it well be with our pastor as he preaches filling with boldness and conviction and clarity from your word and lord if there be anyone who visits with us today who is not in christ and doesn't know this new covenant does not know the significance of communion that we are about to enjoy Lord, would you make that apparent to them and draw them to yourself for your glory? I say to you, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.